This is Jamda On The Go, your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for JAMDA On The Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to JAMDA On The Go for August 2023. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome my colleague and friend, Dr. Barbara Resnick, co-editor-in-chief of JAMDA. And today, we're also delighted to have the opportunity to interview the author of one of the recent JAMDA articles, Dr. Kira Riskina. We hope our listeners are enjoying this interactive style with some of the content experts who actually did the research. Barbara Resnick, PhD, CRNP, is a professor in the Department of Organizational Systems and Adult Health at the University of Maryland School of Nursing. She teaches in the Adult Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Program and Doctoral Program, and she's the Associate Dean of Research. Dr. Resnick holds the Zaporkin Chair in Gerontology, does research in all settings of care, and has over 40 years of clinical practice, which is currently in assisted living and senior housing communities. Today, your editors have chosen four articles that we'll be highlighting from the August issue that we think will be of particular interest to our audience. The topics include a study describing potentially harmful medication prescribing by healthcare provider specialization, that, that is, whether geriatrician or not, in nursing home practice. Then the challenges and ways to overcome the challenges associated with transitioning antibiotics from hospitals to nursing homes. And third, the impact of staffing instability and staffing turnover in nursing homes. Finally, the use of digital gate biomarkers to predict depression in middle-aged and older adults. So it's an honor to start our discussion with our guest author, Dr. Kira Riskina. Kira is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, an attending physician at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. She's a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute, University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine, and a physician at PCAM Advanced Internal Medicine. Kira is a health services researcher with a focus on the quality of physician and other prescribing clinician services to improve care for aging adults with multiple chronic conditions. And she's the lead author for this JAMDA paper, Potentially Harmful Medication Prescribing by the Degree of Physician Specialization in Nursing Home Practice, an Observational Study. Uh, welcome, Barb and Kira. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Carl. All right, so Kira, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your team at UPenn and uh, whoever else might have been part of this? So the 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 this was a, a true multi-institution effort. There were actually three uh, uh, groups involved. Um, it was a great collaboration with Brown University and um, Teresa Shireman, Derek Lowe, and Ting Ting Zhang. Um, great um, um, insight um, on this work. And uh, of course, the data that Brown University maintains of 
um, prescribing uh, patterns for uh, patients and in residents and nursing homes. And um, other, the other group was from the University of Michigan, including Julie Bynum and Lauren Gerlach. Um, I really appreciate um, all the work that the team um, did on, on um, to answer these questions. Great. And so uh, maybe it's an obvious question, but what was the impetus behind uh, wanting to explore this issue? I think um, the thing we really wanted to get at was what are we missing about the um, prescribing of potentially harmful medications for older adults and specifically older adults result, uh, residing in their nursing home. Um, so specifically we looked at the relationship between specialization of physician and nurse practitioner prescribers in nursing home practice and whether their patients were using uh, potentially harmful medications. But the reason we, it might be more obvious to why we looked at potentially harmful medications um, than why we focused on specialization, but I'll explain each, um, I guess, one at a time. Um, as you know, potentially harmful medications are um, for older adults are is, is a very broad term. In our case, we focused on medications um, that have a poorer side effect profile for patients with dementia um, who um, are frequently receiving these medications despite practice guidelines for older adults and a lot of national attention to their high uh, use and high variation between facilities in their use. Um, so the medications that we focused on were um, things like antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, other sedatives, um, some antidepressant medications and other medications with anticholinergic pro properties. Um, and in addition to uh, a poor side effect profile for these medications, specifically for nursing home patients, sedation and effects on cognition of these medications can greatly affect their the patient's quality of life and their ability to interact with caregivers, uh, family. Um, so we we wanted to focus on this particular aspect of nursing home care uh, first. Um, and that's why we looked at, at, at the medications. And the second aspect of the research question was why did we focus on prescriber specialization? Um, so we've actually conducted a systematic review that was published in JAMDA last year um, to look at factors associated uh, with potentially harmful medication prescribing in nursing home in the literature. Um, we looked through um, several hundreds of papers and one surprising finding was that, you know, we know that low direct care staffing is associated with more um, higher prescribing of antipsychotics and things like that. So there are definitely factors that we know that um, have been studied before, but physician and other prescribers, nurse practitioners characteristics haven't been examined in the literature. We actually couldn't um, identify a single study that looked at this before. So specifically for this study, we wanted to look at uh, clinician characteristics, uh, how specialized somebody was in nursing home practice, 
and whether their patients were more or less likely to receive these potentially harmful medications, with the hypothesis being that more specialized prescribers, those who have more experience in nursing home practice, uh, maybe you know, should be less likely to use these medications in patients, or at least mm -hmm. that's what we hypothesized. Yeah, that seems like a pretty intuitive thing to, uh, you know, uh, I mean, of course, there's going to be outliers, uh, regardless of specialization, but that, that seems to make sense. Uh, so did you encounter any challenges in conducting this study? Well, <laughs> that's, that's always a good, there are always challenges. Um, huh. I one issue, I think there is a reason, you know, nobody, there, there is very um, little work looking at nursing home prescribers. Um, it's difficult to, there, there's not good data and it's difficult to characterize clinicians without good data. So it was a great collaboration with um, my colleagues at Brown to, who have, um, prescribe prescription claims um, for nursing home patients for long-term residents. Um, however, even with nursing home claims, there are a lot of characteristics uh, and reasons and factors that play a role in prescribing that we couldn't capture. So that's always a challenge to try to extract something from an observational data set that maybe is not there or is, is sort of um, difficult to measure. Right. Um, and how did you determine specialization? So we used um, Part B or Medicare professional claims to see if a physician or a nurse practitioner um, and, a, and a few physician assistants who, who practice in nursing homes as well um, we we wanted to see whether of all Medicare patients, how many of those patients were in a nursing home. And if basically 90% of their or 85% of their practice, their billing came from nursing home patients, uh, they were considered specialists. Oh, okay. So we really focused on a very, um, you know, end of the, the spectrum. Okay, good. Well, that's, uh, that explains that. So, uh, what are the main take-home messages? What, like, what did you learn from this? And uh, is there something practical that we can do to, um, you know, to act on the findings? Well, so the there were interesting, um, there were interesting. The findings were um, interesting in general. I think it's since it were this wasn't an interventional study. I wish. You know, we could we could take an intervention and and you know here use it to reduce um, antipsychotic use, but um, unfortunately that's not something that we could do. Findings, but um, what we saw is that contrary to our hypothesis, the use of these medications overall was not different between the two groups. So, <laughs> so um, in other words a patient of a more highly specialized uh, clinician in a nursing home was as likely to receive um, potentially harmful, you know, psychotropic medication as a patient of a, a, 
a clinician who saw very few patients in nursing home was not very specialized. Mm. However, when we looked at medications by class, um, there was a small but significant difference where specialists were actually more likely to use uh, benzodiazepine medications um, at low, you know, it was more um, intermittent, uh, low, like shorter durations of use, but um, specialists were actually more likely. So there were definitely differences in the practice patterns. Um, so the third uh, notable thing was that when we looked at how long these patients were on these potentially harmful medications. So comparing the duration of their nursing home, uh, nursing home exposure, patients, uh, specialists did better. So most patients of more specialized providers were um, much less likely to be on these medications for over longer periods of time. Um, and this might have some, in, um, imply some things that we can adapt um, in future interventions. Uh, for example, the default or standard um, day supplies or refill um, uh, volume that we prescribe in the nursing home could be um, you know, shifted for these for these medications to to a lower number. Um, so, for example, um, where we're used to uh, prescribing benzodiazepines um, with multiple refills, where and endpoint for each prescription, and that seems to be what the specialists are doing more so than the um than other clinicians yeah well that's fascinating a little disappointing some of it but i mean i guess at least the duration is is less and uh uh very very interesting so uh what would you suggest as a next step here i i mean what's uh what else do we need to know and then how do we is it an educational intervention or I mean, how do you how do you change people's practices so I think the the type of intervention that might be effective in this case uh, would focus more on high prescribers and um, defaults. Defaults and um, can work. Are uh, defaults are a, a health econ a behavioral economic strategy where uh, we set the default at a level lower in the Um, might be to encourage um, prescribers to use a norm that is below what their typical use. And then obviously this uh, prescribing can be reevaluated for each patient depending on what they need. Um, so for opioid prescribing, we reduce the use of opioids um, by kind of discouraging or in some cases um, mandating uh, quantities of medications that were below this threshold. Um, I 
on the flip side, um, we could use something like peer comparison letters, letting people know where they stand, especially for high highest prescribers or, or um, clinicians who are keeping their patients on a medication um, to remind them that to reconsider using these antipsychotropic or um, other potentially harmful medications for a prolonged period of time on patients on in in nursing homes. Right. Well, you know, uh, it seems like another. I, I mean, having the consultant pharmacist. I, this comparison is certainly, you know, if you, I don't want to say shame somebody, but if you, you know, somebody's at the highest of of some giving harmful drugs, maybe that's going to resonate with the doctor. Nobody wants to be at the you know, at the top of that list. Uh, and and then also the medical directors of facilities obviously can help. Sometimes uh, another prescriber would take more kindly to getting a call from a doc than, uh, than a pharmacist. Barb, any comments or questions here? Yeah, so um, thanks, Kara, for that review. <clears throat> I would say at the beginning, you noted that there's very little information about the quote-unquote characteristics of providers. And it seems to me that next step would be taking a deeper dive there. The way you define a quote unquote specialist um, could be expanded. I you know, think about how that gets defined for advanced practice nurses. For example, you might have a family nurse practitioner versus an adult geriatric versus a geriatric nurse practitioner working in these settings. But I think also um, there would be a real exciting opportunity here to look at things like the benefits of continuing education. How many uh, of these folks were participating in things like the de-prescribing work going on, but to look a little bit more at detail related to that. Carl, I throw out there how many of them are certified medical directors. Mm -hmm. Things things like that would really add. We know education doesn't change behavior. Um, there's lots of policy changes here also that you really didn't, I don't think, take into consideration even around uh, benzodiazepines because of the prescribing of those and having to renew uh, what the different policies are. So really exciting first steps and a, uh, I would say a lifelong program of research. And we hope you'll continue and continue to submit papers to JAMDA. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's been some great discussion and perspective, Kira. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today on Jammed On The Go. All right. So our second paper for discussion today is Transitioning Antibiotics from Hospitals to Nursing Homes, Bridging the Gap by Nanso Osakwe, MD, MPH. This paper addressed the challenges encountered in transitioning patients from the hospital to nursing homes for continued antibiotic treatment and the potential opportunities for improving these transitions. Discharging patients to nursing homes for antibiotic therapy can represent a challenge for a variety of reasons. Hospitalized patients going to nursing homes are obviously more vulnerable. They have typically increased comorbidities compared to people going home. 
Uh, they may have indwelling devices, more antibiotic exposure, and increased risk of infection by multidrug-resistant organisms. Additional challenges are based on the specific long-term care facility, but they include inadequate infrastructure like staff availability and skill set, uh, lab monitoring capabilities and such, and care processes, such as inadequate collaboration, poor communication, uh, poor access to clinicians, and so on. So this paper provides several recommendations for overcoming challenges, including such things as collaborating with hospital providers prior to the transfer and post-transfer, creating electronic discharge order sets or fixed discharge templates that contain all vital information regarding management of antibiotics, Establishment of a multidisciplinary transitional care perennial antimicrobial therapy team with a strong emphasis on having a pharmacist involved and better coordination of electronic health records to share pre and post transfer info between the two settings. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack there. Barb, what were your take home messages from this article? Are you on mute? Yeah, sorry. It's it's always thinking about some of the frustrations uh, between these uh, two settings of care and the transitions. And my take home always is with this stuff, why can't we just pick up the phone and have a conversation and, you know, figure out what we are doing with regard to the um, the infection treatment. I think the other thing to think about here is um, really looking at how maybe infectious disease folks could help us in nursing homes to understand what some of the issues are and um, better ways to treat infections um, among the residents we take care of. Yeah, I mean, in my market, it's challenging, you know, a lot of times, even though we're in a large metropolitan area with a, you know, health information exchange, to get timely infectious disease input, especially once the patient has transitioned to the SNF, uh, uh, you know, it may be really hard to, to get that then. And also, I, well, a lot of times we see people coming out of the hospital on inappropriately prolonged courses of sometimes inappropriate antibiotics, uh, uh, but it would be nice to have a way to communicate back to the hospital, including infectious disease consultants, in kind of a more formalized way, uh, you know, if we could figure out a way to do that. Uh, any any last comments about this piece? No, this is really an area where communication is critical. Uh, it is a specialized area, and we can we could use the help to make sure we're all working in the right direction. Agreed. Yeah. And I mean, I shouldn't get on this soapbox about, you know, emergency departments and the, you know, the, uh, the inevitable UTI diagnosis that supposedly is going to explain everything, but really the person didn't even meet one of McGear's criteria, you know, they, or maybe, you know, they had 10 to 20 white cells in their urine and, the, oh, it's a UTI anyway. Um, but, uh, we all need education, right? So, yeah. Uh, our third paper for discussion today is entitled New Dimensions of Staffing Patterns and Nursing Home Quality, 
comparing staffing instability to staffing turnover. So that's an interesting concept, right? Uh, and the, the first author for this paper is Soham Sinha, MS. This study evaluated how measures of staffing, turnover, and instability are associated with one another and how they independently contribute to quality of care in nursing homes or lack thereof. So this is a cross-sectional analysis of administrative data from 2021 and 2022. So kind of, you know, during and post-pandemic. Uh, and it came from the payroll-based journal database uh, for daily staffing information, merging that with CMS's Nursing Home Care Compare website. Uh, and data included 11 nursing home characteristics, total staffing turnover, and nursing home quality metrics. So a total of almost 12,000 nursing homes nationally, so a great majority of, of the total number of homes, uh, uh, reporting data on daily staffing and staffing turnover were included in this, in this piece. And there was a weekly positive correlation between turnover and instability with some overlap between nursing homes with high instability and high turnover. Uh, not surprisingly, staffing instability and turnover both contributed negatively to nursing home quality, with instability having a stronger association with some measures of quality and turnover with others. Staffing instability was positively and more strongly associated with long-stay residents' decline in ADL levels and receipt of antipsychotic drugs and short-stay residents functioning at discharge. Turnover was positively and more strongly associated with long-stay residents' prevalence of pressure ulcers and worsening mobility and with short-stay residents' hospitalizations. Uh, so that's a lot, uh, and you know, I encourage people to look at the actual article. Uh, but the recommendation from the authors was to add these measures to nursing home care compare. Um, and Barb, uh, maybe uh, you can explain a little bit about what the difference between uh, instability and turnover is, and then you know what were your take homes from it. So I I think some of the issues with instability gets to the time and money investment with recruiting new staff. Turnover as well, but also the instability and the angst for residents is really so critical. And I think it's a major component of quality of care as perceived by the resident. I mean, it is just devastating for these yes. folks when, when a staff leaves, it's like a slap in the face. I think the paper is really a great reminder with everything going on today that we not only have to think about and focus on recruitment, which is so much what we hear about today, but also to think about retention and how we can get staff to not only start these positions, but stay there. Because I think that's really the critical part. And I do believe that at this point in time, there are um, some components within uh, nursing home compare that look at staffing and yeah. look at it more and more seriously. But, you know, my, my thought always is it's hard to get blood from a stone. And if they're not out there, how can facilities hire and uh, I don't know, but 
um, having lived through multiple nursing shortages, I believe it's going to turn around. So I, I really fear not. We do a lot in nursing to make training easy, accessible, any way you need to do it. And I believe we're going to get there. Well, you're an optimist, sister, and I, I admire that. And, uh, uh, you know, I hope you're right. I just, but I, I echo what you said. I mean, it is a tragedy. Uh, and, you know, I mean, back in the day, consistent assignment, you know, you'd have uh, mm -hmm. CNAs and nurses that knew people for, for years, maybe sometimes even decades. And, uh, you know, today with things being as they are, uh, you know, registry staff coming in, they're basically punching a clock. I mean, I, I don't mean to just kind of, give a wholesale dismissal of that whole thing. And I don't in any way blame people for working a job that pays a lot more than than being a steady person at a particular facility. But uh, there are a lot of factors that that uh, uh, certainly uh, make it harder for, you know, to get a stable workforce and uh, not have the turnover. Uh, yeah, I, I would say one thing we also forget is the change in ownership and management, particularly of the healthcare provided, more and more we're seeing um, individuals not so much working in a facility versus a healthcare system that might take over and provide the care. And yeah. that also creates something different because for those healthcare systems, it's putting any body into a peg that's needed. And that's not what our residents want and what we know in geriatrics works. So sometimes it's not just the individual who uh, wants to leave, but it's the system that changes. So there, there is work to be done, but hopefully, as I said, at least the numbers and options of individuals will increase. Oh, I sure hope so. And, you know, I know the Moving Forward Coalition just published its action plans recently in a number of areas. And I'm sure that improving uh, staff retention, overall staffing, you know, reducing turnover uh, in general are among their goals. And they have some fairly practical uh, uh, ideas on how to do that. So let's hope uh, let's hope we can start moving in that direction. Um, all right, so the last paper we wanted to highlight today is the paper entitled Prediction of Incident Depression in Middle-Aged and Older Adults Using Digital Gait Biomarkers Extracted from Large-Scale Wrist Sensor Data. The first author on this one was Stephen Lord, PhD, a well-known researcher in physical activity research. The purpose of this study was to determine if digital gait biomarkers captured by a wrist-worn device can predict the incidence of depressive episodes in middle-aged and older people. Uh, this was a longitudinal cohort study involving about 72,000 participants recruited in the United Kingdom, and they were assessed at baseline on gait quantity, speed, intensity, quality, walk length distribution, and walk-related arm movement proportions. Wow, <laughs> using wrist-worn accelerometers for up to seven days. Uh, approximately 2% of the 1,332 participants had incident depressive episodes over a mean of about seven plus or minus one year. Uh, all gait variables, except some walk-related arm movement proportions, were significantly associated with the incidence of depressive episodes. 
individuals were more likely to become depressed if they were, not surprisingly, less active, if they walked slower, had more variable gait, completed shorter uninterrupted walks, and had fewer arm movement patterns while walking. So, I mean, none of that blows me away, right? It's pretty intuitive. But anyway, these factors could be useful in identifying those at risk for depression and intervening early. So, Barb, what do you think about this one? So, this always gives me a little chuckle of what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Right. As you said, Carl, you know, it's like no surprise if it's harder to walk, there's probably something going on and it's not pleasant, right? It may be knee pain, hip pain, could be any number of things. And so I'm not sure it's the best indicator of depression, but what it is is a good reminder that when there are gait changes, we should do something about it or try and do something about it. This is really challenging, um, but it's helping people pull on their resilience, adjust to the changes. It might be accepting the changes and optimizing what they're able to do. So I, I, I think that's really the take home here. Uh, I wouldn't be evaluating gait and there's a lot of issues around using accelerometers in these folks as well, but we won't go into that. Uh, <laughs> but but I think it's more listening to our patients and thinking about the impact of that knee pain and not just blowing it off. It does impact gait, it does impact function, and certainly can impact mood. Yep. And I mean, obviously, we we know very well that, uh, you know, exercise can help reduce the onset of depression and lots of other, you know, cognitive. Uh, I mean, it's got so many, so many benefits. But right, uh, just because there's an association between these reduced gait parameters and depression doesn't mean that they're walking less because they're depressed, just like you said, right? It's, uh, we don't know what's the chicken and the egg. So um well, good. Any final comments before we wrap up today, Barb? No. Um, interesting things to think about and consider and really good reminders for the care that we provide. Right, right. And, you know, as far as, uh, you know, uh, wrist monitors and so, I mean, I, I uh, have, a, you know, my Samsung watch and, and uh, it counts my steps and everything like that. And uh, yeah, I'm sure, it, you know, Privacy wise, I, you know, it probably knows a lot more about me than, uh, you know, than I know myself. Uh, but uh, I do find it, you know, it does help motivate me. And I'm not sure I want other people looking at it, but, uh, but I'm glad I've got the, you know, the information. I'll, uh, I'll walk around my bedroom for, you know, for five minutes if I'm at, you know, 9,200 steps or something when I'm getting ready to go to bed. So I don't know about you. Uh, <laughs> I wish it did that for everyone, but uh, but for most, it, it unfortunately doesn't stay as a motivator. But it it is interesting, some of the challenges, and we've done a lot of work looking at this, but even things like for older adults who have decreased hand movement uh, during gait, just it could be somebody uh, with Parkinson's or even just as their normal gait changes. 
the actographs don't pick up, accelerometry won't pick up their, uh, their gait in the same way that it would a younger person. So some of it's biased and unfair to begin with. So we, ha we have a lot of work to do there, but that's why I say listening to our patients about gait changes and then implementing interventions to help optimize it is probably the most important thing we can do. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, listening is always important in our work, right, Barb? Yep. <laughs> All right. So that's going to wrap it up for this JAMDA On The Go podcast. Thanks again to our guests, Drs. Barb Bresnik and Kira Riskina, for a great discussion. And thanks, as always, to our editors, writers, and staff from Elsevier, whose efforts continue to generate one great JAMDA volume after another. Please take a look at the August 2023 issue and have a great rest of the summer. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next month, this is Dr. Carl Steinberg signing off for Jamda On The Go. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast.